welcome to Thought Lines, a podcast exploring the freshest and most unconventional thinking at CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. Galloway, and in this episode, we're exploring the road we've already travelled with smart, social, and virtual media, and asking if we're really sure we have the tech we deserve, or could it be better? Hey, Siri, what do you think? I don't have an answer for that. Never mind. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Marcus Tomalin, project manager of the Giving Voice to Digital Democracies project at CRASH. His research moves across linguistics and philosophy to communications, computer science and politics, mapping out a rapidly emerging area that we might call ethical AI. He's also a senior research associate at the Machine Intelligence Lab at Cambridge's Department of Engineering. And it's here I've come to meet him today, as for the first time he's encouraging master's students in computer science to think about the ethics behind the electronics and learn to spot the hidden biases and fleeting programming decisions that make a lasting difference in real life. How do we make sure that in this brave new world, we can see the wood for the screens? Dr. Tomlin, hi, I'm Catherine. Pleased to meet you. Thank you for having us. Um, Who are we going to meet today? We're going to meet a class of MPhil students, um, all of whom are focusing upon um, advanced topics in machine learning and natural language processing. Okay, well, let's meet them. We did find some bias in the machine translation case. Uh, in English, even though it's a non-gendered source sentence, the secretary is attractive. In French, where you have to choose a gender, the secretary becomes a female when they're attractive, and they become a male when the secretary is intelligent. So that is sort of a clear manifestation of bias. There's a question as to whether or not you want your machine translation to emulate the way people speak. Because obviously, if we've got an overabundance of male data, then is your translation system going to speak like a man? Is that something that we want? Obviously, this is broader than just translation. So if you think about um, virtual personal assistants, you know, Siri, Cortana, whatever, and, and people always say, oh, well, of course, but you can select a male voice. But nonetheless, the defaults in the majority of cases are, are female. Do these corporations have some responsibility to do the, the societally beneficial thing in these cases? Is there some role of, of regulation or legislation there? Well, could I just ask, picking up on what you've both just said, can we have a crack at just going around the table quickly to complete the sentence, ethical tech is? Uh, ethical tech is, that's what it is. Ethical tech is difficult. <laughs> I don't think there's such a thing as ethical tech. I think there's tech and it has an ethical impact. I think one of the most frustrating things about when you start talking about ethics in AI is that all a lot of people seem to want to talk about is like the rising up of the machines. Like, (laughs) that's such a far off question compared to, you know, right now we've got biosystems. Dr. Tomlin, just coming out of that class, um, I was very conscious that you're shaping 
a generation, they're all in their sort of mid-twenties, your group there, you're shaping a generation that is going on to be either academics or programmers or both. What do you hope for them? I hope that by participating in um, sessions like that, um, they have an opportunity to reflect upon some of these issues more deeply than they've done so far, and that that will influence the kinds of systems that they end up developing in the future when, as you say, they, they, they become some of the influential programmers, either within academia or within leading corporations. The girl that was presenting today had um, an Obama-style sticker on her laptop, I noticed, that said, yes, we code. And I thought that was a very cool sort of hopeful gesture towards the future and yet also quite retro. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, in my experience, that's that's not atypical. I think um, particularly that generation, you know, the ones that are in their, their kind of early to mid-20s that, that are coming through. This is a generation that hasn't really known a world without these technologies. Yeah. Um, the, these aren't things that they've had to figure out how to use, you know, after, after they've already reached maturity. Um, that they were already familiar with these technologies when they were children. Um, and that puts them in, I think, a really powerful position to influence how these technologies develop in the future. You know, they, they won't, I think, be hankering for, for a sort of, you know, pre-smartphone age and thinking, oh, you know, I wish we could go back to a time before these things emerged because they didn't know such a time. Yeah. So, so, so they take it as, as, you know, this is this is the world I'm living in. These are the tools that are available to me. How can I make them better? And I think that's, um, that's a tremendously important attitude. You've had quite an atypical career path. Can you just talk me through it? You started here as an undergraduate at Cambridge doing what? At school, I wasn't that interested in academic things. Um, so what I did very seriously when I was young was gymnastics. So wow. I, wanted, I wanted to be a gymnast. And um, I had to stop doing that because I had to have an operation on my back. And so then I was in a situation where I couldn't do the thing I really wanted to do, but I had to um, spend lots of time um, rehabilitating, which meant kind of lying on my back doing nothing for about eight hours a day. Um, and <laughs> I sometimes wonder what I would have done now, given the various digital distractions. But at the time, um, I had nothing else to do other than read, so I read lots of stuff. So quite late relatively i mean i was i would have been about 16 at the time um i became really interested in a range of things um particularly languages and mathematics okay and when i i mean this is this is back in the dark ages when i was applying to university at, well applying to cambridge it wasn't possible to study um, linguistics. I wanted to study theoretical linguistics, really. Okay. And it wasn't possible to study that as an undergraduate. So what I was advised to do was apply to study English, but I studied um, French and Greek as part of that course. Yeah. And I spent most of my time studying um, well, various languages and maths um, kind of independently. So I'd go to um, maths lectures and stuff like that. Oh my goodness, and you I, really um, used that Cambridge yeah, opportunity, didn't yeah, you? Yeah. Yeah. And then when I graduated, I completed um, an MPhil in theoretical linguistics. You could only do it at, at that stage when I, when I was doing it. And then I was in Canada for a couple of years and I studied uh, mathematics and computer science. So that's when I, I really took a deep dive into the sort of um, technology side. 
And then when I came back to Cambridge in the in the 90s, um, that's really when I started becoming involved with um, developing language-based AI technology stuff. And that's what I've been doing for the past, whatever, 25 plus years. Wow. So you came back to Cambridge to do a PhD and you were in the engineering department and that fundamentally is where you are most of the time. But then your interest in arts and humanities has come back with with crash and with this digital yeah. democracies, and it never really went away. I mean, even even um, when I was primarily based in in the engineering department, I was always sort of publishing things um, in relation to various arts um, subjects on the side. You know, linguistics and literature and stuff like that. Just because I don't it know, a bit of a loose end. Yeah, I, it was had a bit I, of time on your hands. I, it was stuff I did in the morning and the evening at weekends. It was it was it was fun. I found it. You know, it was different to what I was doing from nine to five. So I think I always kept myself refreshed by um, publishing aqua- across a wide range of domains. But so much of academia isn't that. What do we miss by staying in our boxes? You miss all the interconnections between the different domains, the different fields, and, and you realise that there are insights that can only be obtained if you step outside the, the very carefully placed lines that you're supposed to confine yourself to. And to be honest, that can be, that can be fun as well. Why do we need computer scientists to think about ethics? You've brought this into the computer laboratory here. Why Why did you very much want it to happen? Because I think uh, many of the technologies that are widespread already and will become even more widespread in the future um, have an impact on our societies. They have an impact on our, on our behaviour, the way we interact. And therefore, I think the people who are responsible for designing those systems should think through the ethical and social consequences that those systems may have. And what they conclude about those things may have a significant impact on the systems they design. Who else should be drawn into that conversation then? Who else do you want round the table when you're saying the technology that will be shaping our lives, we need to be talking about that with who? I think the uh, the net should be cast as, as wide as it can be. I think obviously people on the technology side need to be involved, so computer scientists and um, people studying information engineering, things like that. Um, but I think also obviously people um, from the, the arts and humanities and social sciences, particularly um, philosophy, particularly um, sociology and also psychology, I also believe that those groups shouldn't just talk to each other within academia. I think it's essential that those groups are drawn into conversations at the governmental level, um, because if the government is making decisions about legislation relating to some of these technologies, it's absolutely crucial that um, the ministers and their aides who are developing that legislation um, understand the technologies that they're legislating about. And so that conversation has to involve uh, a large group of people. What about the corporations themselves? Would you give a seat round the table to the Facebooks, the Googles? Yes, no, absolutely. Because um, in the last 15 years or so, these have become um, some of the most significant groups that, that are generating and creating these technologies. It seems to me obvious that they need to be involved in the conversation it seems to me that we're living in an age of anxiety, um, an age of environmental anxiety, political, cultural, technological. The internet can be a very angry as well as a very anxious 
place. And I know that you've got an interest in studying how hate speech disseminates. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so it's well recognised that hate speech online is a problem. Currently, there's no easy way to avoid being the recipient of hate speech. The, the standard process is if some sort of hateful content is, is posted on your, your Twitter feed or whatever, then the only way you can do anything about it is by um, raising it with the social media provider and then asking them to remove it if they believe that it contravenes some of their their, their guidelines. Um, but arguably the damage has already been done at that point because the recipient has already read the message and has already been damaged by it. So the sorts of things we've been interested in developing are um, what you might think of you know, ways of quarantining that information. So rather than anyone, whether someone in government or someone who belongs to a corporation, deciding what can and can't be um, posted, a quarantining system would automatically assess the content of the message and give an indication of the likelihood that it could be classified as hate speech. The systems could look out for certain triggers and then automatically signal to the intended recipient, whether it was one person or a community, that possibly this is something you don't want to click on? Yes, and, and it could be set up in various ways. So the the original recipient of it could receive a, just a little trigger warning saying this appears to be, you know, sexist hate speech. Do you want to read it? And even if that person said, yes, I'm happy to read this, it could be set up so that anyone else looking at that person's Facebook um, feed or whatever also sees the same trigger warning because, you know, just because person A is happy to read the content, person B might not be. So what you're talking about is potentially setting up kind of buffer zones on social media and across the internet, across various systems. Is there an appetite for that? Is there is there agreement that that would be a good thing? Or are you getting people saying, oh, no, that's actually curtailing freedom of speech. That's the whole, against the whole point of the internet. It's meant to be a free-for-all. As with everything that relates to kind of online interactions, you know, consensus um, never occurs. But I think there's a sufficiently well-developed sense that hate speech online is a problem, particularly in relation to vulnerable groups, you know, whether that's um, adolescents, whether that's particular social groups. Um, and therefore, I think at the moment, there's a sufficient sense that something needs to be done to offer greater protection to those groups and that something is better than nothing at all. And something that was um, proactive would be better than something that's reactive, in other words, um, that only kicks in after the person has complained about the content. If they could be protected from it before they've been forced to to read it, that seems a, a preferable scenario. I know that the original academic paper that you wrote on this subject went a bit viral, didn't it, for an academic paper? And it was downloaded more than 5,000 times, which is a lot. What did that tell you? As, as academics, you know, we, we, we sort of expect um, you know, relatively small numbers of people to, to read the work that we produce. So it was, I guess, heartening to know that it had generated some interest. Um, and I think that in itself indicates that these sorts of initiatives are, are very much of the moment. The academic life, particularly in this context, seems quite a rebellious, quite a radical choice because you're working on technologies and systems that are developing so quickly 
um, almost quicker than you can write and think about them. And at the same time, academic research is about taking your time to think slowly and think through all the options. Your skills would be snapped up immediately 50 minutes down the road at Facebook headquarters in London. So what attracts you to the academic life as a place to do this work? Anyone who ends up being involved in academia has some sort of belief in the importance of teaching, especially in these tech areas. If you want to simply do research without any element of teaching, then as you say, the the obvious move is to move into one of the corporations where where you you can pretty much just focus on research to your heart's content. Um, Whereas within the university context, there's a strong research element. You know, Cambridge is a, it's a, it's a research-driven university, no question. But it's a place of teaching. It's a place of teaching and learning, and it always has been. Um, and it seems to me that particularly these sorts of issues to do with, say, looking at the ethics of, of, of these particular kinds of technological systems, if an awareness of that can be instilled in undergraduates and then in perhaps master students and PhD students, who are then the people who go on to work for the corporations, you're having an influence in some way over what happens eventually within within those corporations. And I think it's easier to have that kind of influence within the university environment. I think it's harder to have that kind of influence if you're solely involved at, at, at the corporation level. So do you think your work with the Digital Democracies Project, do you think this is the work you were born to do? It's probably the case that I was born to do some kind of research that wasn't confined just to one area, because I think for me that that would always be slightly too um, claustrophobic. One definition of the work of computer science that I've seen um, written from faculty here is computer science is solving really hard problems in the best possible way. So are the systems that you're looking at, artificial intelligence, particularly with a focus on communications, are they making our world a better place? And if they aren't, why aren't they? I think in many ways they are making the world a better place. I think it's probably beyond question that the way we communicate has altered drastically, particularly in the past 10 to 15 years. And I think many people feel now that they're able to communicate with family members who may be scattered around the world much more quickly than they were 15 years ago. We're communicating, but are we talking? We're WhatsApping and messaging. We're WhatsApping and we're messaging. We certainly are. Um, I suppose the, the, the question would be perhaps an historical one. Um, have we ever been able to communicate? Um, whenever, <laughs> with our families. <laughs> right. Whenever, whenever people talk to me about, you know, the, the, these cutting edge technologies, I'm always reminded of what the French novelist um, Gustave Flaubert is, is alleged to have said about trains. He was asked what he thought of them and he replied that he thought they'd enable us to be stupid together more quickly. Um, <laughs> and I think Twitter and Facebook and WhatsApp and, and all the other things, they, they certainly enable us to be stupid incredibly rapidly. I think they enable us to do other things as well. So I'm not sure that the technology is the thing that makes us stupid. I think we might be fairly stupid, many of us, (laughs) to start with, and the technology just perhaps makes that more apparent. So there's things that, you know, we can work on as a society kind of independently of, of the technology, I think. In your master's class that we were listening to you teach today, um, we were talking about hidden bias and things that you don't even really know are there because the system is 
busy translating for you or doing something for you and you don't actually realise how those decisions are made. But for something like machine translation, you know, I input a sentence in English, it outputs a sentence in French and it's made decisions at various points. Well, it's output that particular sequence of words, say in French, because that particular sequence of words had the highest probability. And so the answer to the question is, why did it decide to output that? That's what we trained it to do by feeding it the training data that we did. And it comes back to human beings. It comes back to human beings, you know. So there used to be a phrase that you'd hear quite a lot. People used to say things like, let the data decide, implying that um, the system is in some sense objective. You know, we just put in data and the system decides and, and, and that's all there is to it. But of course, it's a very limited way of looking at it because we chose the data. Right. So we can't shift the onus of responsibility off our own shoulders and say, well, it's all to do with the data. We choose the data and how we collect data, how we annotate data is crucial to how these systems perform. So, you know, we decide. (laughs) It's not the data that decides. It was never the data that decided. Although it's quite comfortable when faced with a very vast and new technology, it's quite comfortable to sort of outsource it to a machine, isn't it? Of course. It's too scary otherwise to Of course. Time. Yeah, that's absolutely right. But, you know, comfort really leads to the truth. <laughs> um, I've brought along a cartoon that I saw this week, which I thought you might like. Um, here's a, an old lady sitting on a, on a sofa with her walking stick over it, and she's talking to her Alexa, and she's saying, Alexa, do you remember the good old days? When were the good old days, as far as you're concerned, in terms of technology adoption? I mean, or are we still in the Wild West? Are we still in a situation where things are going too quickly for us and we're not really sure how to use them? Smartphones are too clever. Technology is making some decisions for us or we're giving away a lot of our agency, perhaps. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess I've always had a problem with any notion of the good old days. It's certainly the case that the pace of change at the moment is faster than any of us have experienced previously. I mean, really, four to six months is is quite a long time in this sort of domain. And a state-of-the-art technology that's very much in place, it's highly unlikely it'll still be the state-of-the-art technology in a year's time. It, it probably will have been um, improved on several times um, in the space of a year. And knowing how to handle that pace of change is, is extremely difficult. It's very hard to establish a sort of focused research emphasis on a particular topic because the temptation is to keep running after these other apparent improvements. So certainly from the perspective of someone involved in in this stuff, I'd hesitate to say, you know, the present constitutes the good old days. I, I think just the rapidity of it, you know, that alone makes it difficult to decide what to focus on. But then I don't think the good old days were, you know, in the 90s or or the 80s. I mean, things were simpler then, things were slower then, but the systems were, were, were far inferior. I mean, just far inferior to what they are now. So it's exciting that at the moment the systems have reached a point where they're starting to be used in really quite a widespread way. That's that's exciting. But it means that we have much greater responsibility for the technologies we develop. Can I ask you about your own tech use? You know, I mean, do, can you switch off? Do you switch off? Are there some aspects of social media or whatever that you just don't engage with? Or are you sampling, looking, checking, swiping? 
I'm I'm sort of doing both. So um, my my view of, of social media is that I believe it's important from an institutional level. But then I also switch off in that I don't own a phone. <laughs> you don't own a phone. You don't what at all. Not even a sort of Nokia brick. No. That's how, how does that work? Quite easily, I'd recommend it. <laughs> so people um, are sending a carrier pigeon to your college? or they, Well, they? email, you know, you, you can always be accessed via email and stuff like that. And um, it's very rarely the case that someone gets grumpy because they can't just text you or something. You know, right. so, well, if it's worth communicating, put it in an email. And if it's not, then hey. But how do you check your email? I mean, what, what about that thing? I mean, I saw a very amusing statement the other day about somebody saying you know the doorbell industry is in crisis because of millennials keep texting here <laughs> so how do you manage my heart bleeds for the doorbell yes, yes well i mean it's a serious problem <laughs> well i mean checking email i mean i have a laptop and um you know my life sufficiently tedious in some ways that i spend a lot of time sitting at a desk in front of a computer screen so i can always see when email comes in and i can respond to it as, and if a friend's late for the cinema then you just patiently um, wait I, I old wait. school and it's it's you know time to think <laughs> that's amazing where next where next well with these sorts of areas, you know, the, the, the sort of ethical and social impact of these sorts of technologies, at the moment it feels that there's so much to say about that for the foreseeable future. But in these areas, the foreseeable future is probably, you know, a couple of years max. <laughs> um, but if you're able to anticipate that to some extent, then it puts you in an interesting position. You know, we've already seen situations, as you suggested earlier, where the technology has, has kind of outstripped us. You know, it's already doing things and we're starting to theorise about whether it should or shouldn't be able to do that thing. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's too late. So you have to try and anticipate. You have to try and think, well, it's likely to go in that direction. So what do we need to think about in advance so that if it does go down that direction, we, we, we've got some kind of framework or, or some sort of rationale for, for handling it in a certain way. Most people really hadn't heard of something like a smartphone until about 2008, nine. Is that Would that be right? Mm-hmm. Where are we going to be in 10 years' time? What am I going to be using that, I, that doesn't even yet exist or is a glimmer in some engineer's eye right now? I think with these technologies that have some sort of language-based component systems like you know Siri and Cortana and, and Alexa, these virtual personal assistants. Um, I think that's where there will be quite a, a rapid development of what those systems can do. Um, I mean, at the moment, it's still primarily, you know, hey, Siri, what's the weather going to be like this afternoon or setting a timer or something like that. So relatively mundane. Maybe in 10 years time, you'll be saying, hey, Siri, how should I vote in the next general election? Oh, my word. And by that point... Will I actually trust Siri? I mean, that, that as ever would be your call. By that point, Siri might know quite a lot about you, might know quite a lot about your various allegiances, you know, um, groups that you follow, that you're connected with, might know more about your own past activities than you remember as a result of all the interactions that, that wow. have taken place over a 10-year period by that point. So one way of looking at it would be to say, well, you know, a system like that might be well-placed to give you advice about what you should do. If they're still doing manifestos at that point, it might be able to 
access um, information about you know tax cuts and it might be able to calculate how you personally would benefit all these sorts of things might inform your decision um, if something like that was set up in a transparent you know ethical way you could imagine ways in which that might be very very useful but of course it could also be an entirely dystopian vision yeah. of the future you know by then Siri or whoever m- might be your new best friend this might be someone who who gives you sort of emotional support in a way that other human beings don't always manage to that's one possible route that all of this could go and if anything like that is close to the truth then I think it's all the more obvious that we need to think quite deeply about these issues now <laughs> before it's already emerged Dr. Marcus Tomlin, thank you very much for talking to me face to face. Given what you've just said, that feels actually like quite an important moment in time. If a bit old school. Yes, thank you very much. You're the one without a phone. <laughs> thank you very much indeed for speaking to us on Thoughtlines. Thank you. Thoughtlines is presented by me, Catherine Galloway, and produced by Carl Homer for Cambridge TV on behalf of Crash the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. Join us again next time for more academic thinking outside the box. just love it if, if one of these systems had like a sweary option yes like I would put it on so, so if I said you know like, hey Siri what's weather going to be this afternoon you know I'd like it to say um, google it yourself you lazy f-. you know, I would love it right <laughs>